Appreciate that. Good job. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew 25 this morning. We are continuing to work verse by verse uh, through the, the book. And uh, we are in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, parable of the talents this morning. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege uh, to study, to, to assemble together in Jesus' name. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the word of truth. And I pray that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly make the appropriate applications uh, to where we live. So, Lord, again, we commit our study time to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, note on the overhead the, uh, the outline of the book. The theme is Christ the King. And we have worked our way down to uh, chapters 24 and 25, commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is the prophetic seed plot, as I like to call it, the prophetic seed plot of the Old Testament. There God gave an overview of his prophetic dealings with Israel from the time that Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2 until the kingdom comes. And so uh, just by way of review... Uh, Okay, we've got Artaxerxes giving the command to rebuild Jerusalem. There'd be 69 weeks, uh, 69 units of seven years, total of 483 years, until Messiah the Prince uh, comes on the triumphal entry. He presents himself to Israel as he's being presented officially at that point, right before the cross. Then there's this long stretch of, uh, you know, undefined gap period. And then we have this... uh, This last week, uh, the 70th week, the final seven-year period, uh, which uh, starts, you know, we have the rapture and and we have the beginning of of the day of the Lord there. But I want you to see that from this period here, Artaxerxes' command, until here... Uh, this full would be. This brings in the kingdom at the conclusion. You have the rapture at the beginning of this 70th week, but then at the conclusion is the second coming here. That whole stretch is this 70th week or the 70 weeks of Daniel prophesied in Daniel 9. Now, what I want you to note is that uh, we have very specific dating related to Israel in this prophecy. From the command to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah's presentation in the triumphal entry would be 69 weeks, 483 years, precisely. Uh, There would be an undefined amount of time in a gap period, which essentially corresponds with the church age. The church age was a mystery in the Old Testament, so it is left undefined. But at some point, some undefined point... Uh, there will be one more week, seven-year period, of special dealings with Israel that will be fulfilled that will usher in the kingdom. Matthew 24 intersects with this 70th week of Daniel, showing that it connects closely to Christ's second coming. In Matthew 24, Jesus shows that there will be two phases to his second coming. He shows that the first phase the rapture, is imminent as it will come unexpected as a thief in the night, which in turn introduces the day of the Lord judgment, which also comes as a thief in the night. So this is uh, what Jesus shows us here. Uh, We're really, he's introducing, okay, second coming. Uh, There's two phases to the second coming. There's an unexpected, comes as a thief in the night, rapture, 
But that introduces this uh, 70th week of Daniel, which uh, the day of the Lord that comes as a thief in the night. So this is uh, introductory here as far as uh, the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period. And then, of course, at the second phase, too, he he returns to the earth. Well, after introducing the imminent, unexpected first phase of his second coming, Jesus proceeded to drive home the point of imminency and that we don't know when he is coming and therefore the importance of living ready. And he did this by way of three parables. So note the flow of thought here. We have uh, the analogy of a thief coming in the night. That's how he's going to come. And that's really introductory to these three parables. In chapter 24, 45 through 51, the parable of two servants. One is ready, one is not. 25, 1 through 13, that we looked at last week, parable of ten virgins, five are ready, five not. And today, the parable of the talents. Two are ready, and one is not. So you see the theme that is being developed. Well, as we now come to the parable of the talents, we again have underscored that when the Lord comes, some will be found to be true disciples and some false disciples. The warning is strong throughout all these parables that there are phony professors who don't really know the Lord, and when he comes, they will be exposed for what they truly are. And the warning here is strong. It comes through in every one of these parables. Now, it should be noted that while there are similarities between the parable of the talents here in Matthew 25 and the parable of the minas in Luke 19, there are also a good number of differences, in effect making them two distinct and separate parables given on different occasions. Well, let's pick it up, Matthew 25 and verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Verse 14 begins with a connector word, uh, that word for. This conjunction closely links this parable to the preceding parable. The meaning of this parable is very similar to the previous with a slightly different emphasis. Thomas Constable says... Quote, the point of the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents is the same. The difference is a matter of emphasis. The emphasis of the first one is the importance of spiritual preparation, whereas the emphasis of the second is the importance of spiritual service. In effect, to be prepared is to be serving. Thus, the parable of the talents amounts to an expansion on the emphasis of readiness being developed since chapter 24, verse 36, which emphasizes we don't know the day nor the hour. We don't know the timing, and therefore we need to live ready. Well, this phrase in my King James, the new King James, where it says uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is not found in the older manuscripts. The text simply says, for like a man traveling to a far country. This man, uh, taking his leave, uh, called his servants, literally his slaves, and delivered his goods to them as a matter of stewardship. Now again, we should note that this is a parable, and in parables there is normally one main point being made. Once again, the emphasis is on living ready in light of the Lord's return, with the emphasis here being that living ready is displayed in faithful service. 
Now, the word servant, as I say, is more literally slave. The three in view in this parable all claim to belong to the master. They all, they all call him Lord. But the latter of the three shows that his identification with the master is ultimately superficial and not authentic, as is clearly brought out at the end of the parable. Verse 15, And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now a talent was the largest denomination of money in the Roman world. Uh, it is thought to have been worth about 6,000 days wages, or what you would be paid for 6,000 days of labor uh, for, for, the common, for the common earner, the common worker. Or we might say about 20 years worth of wages for the average wage earner. So even one talent was worth a fortune, 20 years worth of work approximately. Well, this wealthy man gave one servant five talents to another two, and to the last one, just one, as a matter of stewardship before he left on his journey. Now, by way of application, the talents in this parable represent our God-allotted resources in life, including such things as time, money, abilities, opportunities, position in life. It is whatever God in common grace has given. Now, by way of application, we see that before God, our life's resources are valuable and precious to Him. We ourselves are valuable because we are made in the image of God, and He doesn't make any junk. And then what God has allotted to us in common grace as a stewardship, has great value in the eyes of God. Everything about human life is important before God because it's all of God. And God intends it to be used for Him and for His glory. Now, note that the stewardship in view for each individual was, quote, according to his own ability. We're not all given the same stewardship. Everyone is different with differing abilities and a different life stewardship. The issue is not how much we have, but how well we use what we have been given. That's the issue. And we've all been given a little differently. There's no two people uh, that have the same life resources, that have the same life responsibilities. Bob Deffenbaugh says, We should be careful to recognize that in this parable, the mere possession of a talent is not evidence of salvation. The one-talent slave is clearly not saved. He is condemned to hell. From the parable of the talents, we seem to be informed that unbelievers are entrusted with certain things and that they will also give account for their stewardship. I believe that there are other texts of Scripture which indicate that God has entrusted by common grace certain assets to all men and that all men are accountable to God for how they use or do not use these resources which God has entrusted to them. Verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received the two gained two more also. But he who had received the one went and dug in the ground, hid his Lord's money. Now remember, the talents here did not ultimately belong to these slaves. They were simply on loan from the master. 
They were simply stewards of what was the master's. Verse 14 says that the master delivered his goods to them. So the issue becomes, what is the slave doing with the master's talents, the master's goods? What were they doing with them to serve the purpose and the good of the master? It's all about the master and his interests. Now, I know the world likes to think it's all about me, me, myself, and now, and living for me. But really, the Bible paints a whole different picture. We were created for God, and and we are here to serve His purposes. Now, the first two used their God-given abilities to double what the Master had entrusted to them. The third servant simply buried his Lord's money, yielding absolutely no increase or gain for the Master. I mean, it was a life wasted, totally wasted life. God didn't give you life and talents for nothing. He expects you to use it for his glory. Life comes with accountability to the one who gives life. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Note the language here, after a long time. John Phillips says, this one statement fixes the interpretation of the parable to our own age. The Lord will be away during the great tribulation too, but those days are to be shortened, 24-22. It is the present age that is marked by the prolonged absence of the Lord. Indeed, the idea of investing in the normal routine of life coupled with the language of a long delay does not fit the idea of the tribulation period. I mean, back again, note uh, our overhead diagram here. Uh, You know, we have this long gap period in here. That's a a long delay. This is a little seven-year period in which the days are even shortened. That that doesn't really fit the, the, uh, the parable in terms of what's being described as a long delay. But this does, uh, from, from when the Lord left here and now all this is a long period. We're 2,000 years into this. So note also that there is delay in the previous two parables showing a common theme of not knowing when the Lord will come. Uh, just by way of review, here in 24.8, we saw in this parable of the, of the uh, two servants, one evil, one good. But if the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming... So again, he's thinking, there's a delay here. He's not coming back right yet. And then in chapter 25 with the the virgin's parable, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Ever since the beginning of the church age, the mantra has been, the Lord is going to return soon. I've been hearing this my whole life. I surely didn't think I'd get to be 65 and he's not here yet, right? Right? I mean, I've been hearing this my whole life. I was sharing in my Sunday school class that when I first got saved, I was, I was 21 years old when I got saved. And uh, my brother was engaged to get married, and I thought, I'm not sure he's going to get there. I think the Lord's going to come first. Well, he's been married for over 40 years now. <laughs> Long time. So we have been expecting the Lord to come, and we're expecting him soon. And we say Maranatha, the early church, our Lord comes, Maranatha. We've been saying Maranatha. We say Maranatha, our Lord is coming. And yet, 
when there is a seeming delay, it's easy for people to get lax or think it's not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, after all, we've been saying this for 2,000 years. It's easy to lose sight of imminency. When a long time passes, and that's the challenge of the parables. It's the challenge of the church age. And it is of such a nature that Peter felt compelled to write this. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it seems like he's maybe being accused. Of, he's slow. He's, not, he's very slow to know what he is. Doing. He's waiting for more people to get saved. That's what Peter says. So don't accuse the Lord of being slow. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. No, understand. He's waiting for more people to get saved. And it makes sense that the long delay is the age of grace. Come is the invitation. And he's waiting for more to come, for more to get saved. Robert Thomas says, The lesson of this parable is that of serving the Lord responsibly while awaiting his return. Readiness for his return also entails responsible action while he is away. Not for a limited time, but for a time of unstipulated length. Verse 20. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. This man started as a slave who was a steward. But being faithful in that role, he received commendation from the master and was made ruler over many things and was invited into the joy of his master. Now, it is interesting that he was given five talents in value, which amounted to about a hundred years worth of work. And yet the Lord saw it as being, quote, faithful over a few things. What a paradox. No matter how much we've been given, in the great scheme of things, it's a little thing. Entrusted to us for just a little time. And yet the ramifications of it are great. Being faithful with what God has given us results in being given even a greater role of service in the kingdom. We were created to serve. To serve his interests. To serve the master's purpose. We see this from the very beginning as, as God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Genesis 2.15. I mean, that was before the fall. There was work before the fall. You say, well, work's a result of the fall. No. Uh, the sweat of the brow and, and uh, you know, dealing with a cursed earth, that's a result of the fall. But work in itself is, it was good. It was before the fall. Even in the eternal state, in Revelation 22, 3, it says, And his servants shall serve him. Our reward in heaven will evidently relate to our service and our position to rule. Actually, Revelation combines both of these ideas of being God's slaves and reigning. 
Uh, note uh, the, the Holman Christian Study Bible. Uh, I like it because it's a literal, tra- very literal translation at this point. There will be, no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His slaves will serve Him. He's describing the eternal state. What are we doing? Well, we're going to be doing something. Say, well, I'm just sitting there, you know, strumming my harp. And, you know, that's what I'll be doing for all eternity. No, no. You're going to have activity. You're going to have work to do. His slaves will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist. People will not need uh, lamp light or sunlight because the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. So note this combination of slaves serving him and yet reigning forever and ever. Moody Bible Commentary says, This parable suggests rewards involving enlarged opportunities to serve him when the millennial kingdom is established and to experience the joy of the master as it is done. But it also ties those rewards to what the believer does presently during the time the master is away. Amen. Verse 22. He who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Note the one given only two talents was faithful with them and given the very same commendation and reward as the one who is faithful with five. You know, whatever the Lord has given you, that's what you're responsible for. Tim LaHaye says, not all are expected to produce the same results, but all are to be faithful with what they have. That's the issue. God's not holding you accountable for what you don't have. It's, he's uh, holding you accountable for the talent or the talents that he has given you. Now, there's a great lesson here, by the way. We are not in competition with one another. Can I say that again? We are not in competition with one another. We are all uniquely gifted, and that is what we are accountable for. We are not accountable for the gifting of others, only for what God has given us. Now, some people want to kind of say, well, I'm doing this. Everybody else ought to be doing exactly what I'm doing. Uh, You're missing the point of the parable. No. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, they are not wise. As Christians, we are all uniquely gifted. Our giftedness is like our fingerprints, unique to us. No one else has exactly what you have been given to serve God. You are special, you are unique. This and this alone is what you are responsible for. Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a gift. As God's people, you're all gifted. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, he too says, Lord, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. (laughs) I haven't haven't held back. It's it's there for you. Note all three of these examples called the Master Lord, including this one who is shown to be wicked 
and unfaithful. They all knew they had a stewardship responsibility. The difference is in how they responded to the responsibility. This third servant, in contrast to the first two, is shown to be wicked, as we will see in verse 26. This servant, who was unfaithful, offers nothing but an excuse for why he did not make a profit. You know, old Ben Franklin said this, which is a pretty good statement. He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. You know, that, that, that's, that's true, isn't it? I mean, some people are really good with excuses, but they're really not good for much else. And then there's the blame game. You see, he says, he's really kind of blaming the master. It's because I knew you to be a hard man. And the blame game is the oldest game in the world. I mean, how often we see that the guilty party wants to turn it around and make the innocent party seem guilty. (laughs) I mean, it's just kind of depraved thinking. It's a devil's game, and it's an old one, going way back to the fall of mankind. You see, when Adam sinned, he had the audacity to try and shift the blame first to God for giving him the woman. The the woman that you gave me. Let me remind you, you gave me that woman. I mean, and then to the woman for giving him the forbidden fruit. Eve, in turn, blamed the serpent. The serpent, he had nowhere else to go but down. Uh, The wicked servant was full of excuses and in effect sought to blame the character of the master for how he had acted. The servant's great wickedness, I think, is seen in the defamation of his master's character. There's absolutely nothing in the context to suggest that the master was harsh, unmerciful, or unfair. This servant thinks the worst of the master's character and has the audacity to say so. The word hard is the idea of harsh, severe, or difficult, instead of being gracious and kind. Now, he claims that he knew the master was one to reap where he had not sown and to gather where he had not planted. Well, this really impeaches the master's character as being one who is unfair, exploiting people who lacks mercy and who is a taker and not a giver. Just try to apply that to God. And what do you get? Blasphemy. This shows that in spite of his profession, he didn't really know the master. He didn't really know his character. At core, this slave's problem was a wrongful view of his master. Well, consequently, he says he acted out of fear and not out of love. He had the kind of fear born out of hostility, resentment, instead of a godly fear, which is loving reverence. He did not have the fear of a reverential awe, but rather of irreverent contempt. John MacArthur says, This slave represents the professing Christian whose limited knowledge of God leads him to conclude that he is distant, uncaring, unjust, and undependable. Instead of judging themselves in the light of God's inerrant word, such people judge God in light of their own perverted perceptions. Being full of excuses and insulting blame, the slave evidently in a self-justifying way said, Look, there you have what is yours. After all, he hadn't lost anything. It was all still there. Nothing gained, nothing lost. And he expected that to be good enough. 
But with God, total fruitlessness, where there's no fruit, is a mark of the unregenerate. You see, all living things grow. This is the pattern and overall rule of life. David Gazik says, at least he understood that what he had been given belonged to the master. He said, you have what is yours. Many modern servants of God think that when God gives them something, it no longer belongs to God. It belongs to them. And they can do with it as they please. You know, prosperity gospel teachers come off this way. Uh, where it's, it's a matter of you and, and getting what you want. And just, you know, just have enough faith and, and you'll get what you want. You're writing your ticket with God. Makes it all about them, really, instead of being all about God. Discernment. When you finally realize that the prosperity gospel offers you everything that Satan offered Jesus Christ. What did Satan offer Jesus? I mean, he comes tempting him. Well, he offered him bread, glory, and the kingdom the easy way. You know, the way that is without the cross. Outside the will of God, doing it your way. Satan really catered to selfism. The caters to immediate gratification instead of waiting on God. This wicked servant made it all about him instead of all about the master. The last three parables here show that the fruit of preparedness and faithfulness indicates the character of those awaiting the Lord's return. In each parable, character is manifested in works. Now, we're not saved by works. We know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved by a faith that works. Again, MacArthur says, this last slave portrays the unregenerate church member who has no spiritual fruit in his life and no spiritual worship in his heart. He is blind to the Lord's kindness, grace, compassion, mercy, honor, majesty, and glory because he has never surrendered to the Lord's sovereignty and grace. Henry Morris says, a life with no evidence of good works is not a life of authentic faith in Christ, for faith without works is dead. Verse 26, the Lord's response, but his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. The Lord's response was to identify this servant as being wicked and lazy. The word wicked emphasizes something that is morally reprehensible. And being lazy emphasizes not being willing to even do the least little thing to further the master's best interests. I mean, he was totally unwilling to serve, to exert himself for the advancement of the master. It was all about self and self only. And he had no excuse because he supposedly knew what the master was demanding. I mean, he said that. I, I know that you're a hard man, and, and I knew that you'd be uh, wanting this. By the way, in repeating the slave's deprecation of him, uh, the master was not affirming it, but simply reasoning that if he really thought this, that he should then at the very least have deposited in the bank so that it might have gained some interest money. This suggests that the man 
was not even consistent in his excuse. I mean, if he really believed that his master was coming back and that he'd have to give an account to this harsh master, then at the very least he would have put it in the bank so there could be some return. After all, he's a harsh, he's going to expect some return. But he lacked faith. So that he was not even motivated on this basic level. Behind his wicked laziness was a total lack of faith. Now, if he didn't really believe that the master was coming back or doubted it, then burying his talent in the ground made more sense in terms of a self-serving agenda. You see, then he didn't have to lift a finger. I mean, after the burial, that's, it's all, just, just leave it there. He didn't have to lift a finger. And if he put it in the bank, there would be an official record that it belonged to the master. But if it was simply buried, no one would know. And if the master failed to show up, then the wicked servant could just dig it up and claim it as his own. This servant was wicked and lazy and illustrates a total lack of faith. Well, Judas was kind of this way, right? He was all excited about the kingdom prospects. And then suddenly, Jesus began to say, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. Well, that... In Judas's might, he didn't sign up for that. He signed up for kingdom glory. And then he changed gears and decided he would try to get out of it what he could. It was all about self. And so it was with this wicked, lazy servant. It was all about self. A footnote here. The Old Testament forbade the Jews from charging one another interest. However, they were allowed to exact interest from the Gentiles. Verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now this reflects a fixed law in the spiritual realm. Christ applied the same principle in Matthew 13 in relationship to his, his teaching of the parables. Uh, remember what he said there, Matthew 13, 12, whoever has to him more will be given and he'll have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. He's thinking in terms of, of understanding, of, of knowledge related to kingdom truth in that context. Well, this is simply saying that all those who are faithful will be given even more and those who are unfaithful with what they had will even have that taken away from them. You see, losers live for self. Losers are lazy. Losers are wicked. And these are the eternal losers. The winners live for God, seek to advance his interests. The winners actively serve. The winners are good and faithful servants. And these are the eternal winners. Well, let me ask you, are you an eternal loser? Or are you an eternal winner? The master then said, verse 30, and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is consistently a metaphor of judgment on the lost in the Gospel of Matthew. This language definitely shows that this person represents those who are not saved. I mean, everywhere else in Matthew, this language is descriptive of those who go to hell of the eternal fate of the lost. The description all the way through is indicative of an unsaved person. Notice he is called wicked and lazy. 
He is unprofitable. He will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's very inconsistent to apply such severe language to a child of God because in Scripture, it consistently is descriptive of eternal punishment in hell. Now, yet, in spite of what I just said, some reason that because he is called a slave, he must therefore be representative of a true believer. But we should remember this is a parable that is making one main general point. And we should remember that in the earlier parable of the two servants, the evil servant is also called a slave in the Greek. And that wicked slave was also appointed, quote, his portion with the hypocrites, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as seen in Matthew 24, 48 through 51. The point in all these parables is that there are true servants of the Lord and there are phony ones who have never truly been saved. Moody Bible Commentary, he is a counterfeit disciple who never actually knew him. In Matthew's gospel, one finds true and false prophets, sheep and wolves in sheep's clothing, houses built on sand, houses built on rock, wheat and tares, wise and foolish virgins, righteous and unrighteous servants. Not all who are associated with Jesus are true disciples. How true that is. And that's where the warning is. These all are claiming an association. It's like Jesus runs to the end of the story as to what will happen to the unfaithful at the end of the day if they don't get right with God. You see, those be left behind at the rapture will face the day of the Lord judgment. All believers will be taken to be with the Lord in the rapture. Only believers will be taken, and the unbelievers will be left behind to face the wrath of God. According to Jesus, what will follow will be the worst time of tribulation ever seen by the world, so severe that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would even be saved. I mean, the the human race will be in jeopardy of extinction. I mean, with just the fourth seal judgment, Revelation 6, 8, And just the sixth trumpet judgment, Revelation 9, 15. Just between those two judgments, one half of the earth's population will die. I mean, we know that from from just those two judgments. That's not to mention all the other seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. No wonder Isaiah 24, 6 says, Few men are left. If people don't get saved and hold out in rebellion against the Lord, the final end for them is what Jesus describes here in Matthew 25, 30. Outer darkness is a common description of hell in the New Testament. You see, the Bible says God is light. And to be cast into outer darkness is to be completely banished from his presence. Hell is a place of eternal darkness. But it's also a place of eternal pain and misery. Weeping speaks of sorrow emotional agony of those in hell, while gnashing or grinding of teeth speaks of pain, physical agony in hell. The picture painted is one of eternal misery. We find the contrast back in Matthew 13, where Jesus said, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. 
there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention. Listen up to this. This is most important. Edward Hinson says, the idea of this illustrative parable is that all true believers will produce results. Elsewhere called fruits in varying degrees. This is consistent with the whole gospel of Matthew. It's consistent with John the Baptist's message. Remember what John the Baptist told the people in Matthew 3.10? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree. It's consistent with Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Where he said in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they got lip service. Lord, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Who's going? Oh, the one who does the will of the Father. It's consistent with Christ's parable of the sower and the soils. The seed that fell on the good ground, representing true believers, all yielded some fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold, but all brought forth some fruit. It's also consistent with what Christ taught in John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's interesting. He categorizes them by what they have done one way or the other. You see, the problem with the wicked man in the parable is that he brought forth zero fruit. He had absolutely nothing to show for his life. This is the picture of the unbeliever. In the end, they have nothing to show. I mean, their life is a total waste. Truly, they were completely unprofitable servants, no matter how much they professed to be Christians. This person represents those who have no saving faith, no relationship No saving relationship with the Lord, and consequently, absolutely no fruit. But someone says, and I can hear it, right? I can hear it. Someone says, what about the carnal Christian? Well, what about him? Uh, What about the carnal Christian as seen in 1 Corinthians 3 who has all of his works burned up? I think it makes the point. It makes the point that they did have works, that could be evaluated. Yes, they're of an inferior quality that does not pass the the inspection, doesn't pass the test, but there was something that could be examined. This wicked professor in the parable had absolutely nothing to even examine. He had zero to show for his life. Besides that, I would point out, in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul goes on to say this. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now commentators grapple with this verse, but many think this indicates that there will be something God finds praiseworthy in the lives of all his children. There is something of good fruit in the lives of all God's people. 
You know that thief on the cross? He didn't have a lot of time to serve, did he? He's been bearing fruit ever since. The things he, he, you know, he's rebuking the other thief who wouldn't repent. There's a testimony right there. Each one will have some praise from God in terms of what they did for him on earth. Certainly, all believers have the obedience of faith. As Paul brought out in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, in 1626. And the first thing, the very first thing that one ever does to please God is the act of saving faith is brought out in Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But all true believers have come to please God in the act of saving faith. All true believers share in this God-pleasing reality. Thus, each one's praise will come from God. You know what you have to do to go to hell? That's it. Nothing. Nothing at all. Hebrews 2, 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Exactly. That is the point of the parable of the talents regarding the person who's the unprofitable servant. There's an old poem that says, For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Stanley Toussaint says, In the last three parables, the principle which underlies each is the same. The fruit of faithfulness and preparedness would indicate the character of those living in the days before his coming. In each parable, character is manifested by works. This thought forms the key to the next passage, which deals with the judgment of the nations, as we will study, Lord willing, next time. It's not that we're saved by works. We are not. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, as the Reformers were known to say, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. That is sound doctrine. S.D. Gordon, in an old book titled Quiet Talks on World Winners, described a group preparing for an ascent on Mount Blanc in the Swiss Alps. And he writes this. On the evening before the climb, a French guide outlined the prerequisite for success. He said, you will only reach the top by setting aside all the unnecessary accessories and carrying only the essentials. Well, a young Englishman disagreed and proceeded along the path by himself. The following morning... Not only carrying climbing equipment, but a slightly colored blanket, large pieces of cheese, a bottle of wine, and bars of chocolate, and camera equipment. Under the direction of the guide, the group set off behind the young Englishman and found along the way his blanket, his cheese, his wine, his chocolate, and his camera. Finally, they discovered him at the top, minus all of his accessories. S.D. Gordon then made this application. So many people, when they find they can't reach the top with all their stuff, let the top go and pitch their tents in the plane. And the plane is so very full of tents. Indeed, the plane is very full of tents. 
And that's a scary place to be when it is only to the faithful that the Lord will say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. In order for him to say, well done, it has to be done. Perhaps there are so many that are merely spectators because in truth, many have never truly been saved. The warning about the unprofitable servant in the parable is to them. The warning of the parable is shocking and intended to jar mere professors out of their selfish state of apathy. Those that truly know the Lord are expected to serve him while waiting. And if there is no fruit in the life, that is evidence that the person doesn't really know him. Now, while we are fruit inspectors, I mean, Christ said you will know them by their fruits. We must leave off final judgment to God, for in the end, God alone is the judge of all, who knows those who are his. But the Bible does say, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's possible to examine yourself, to test yourself. Well, are you in the serving category of well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you in the unprofitable category of wicked and lazy servant? As Jesus said in Matthew 13, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. God help us to be true servants who serve the master well. God help us to live ready. Let's stand and have our closing song.